Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to Where Are We? We are in Exploring the Lord of the Rings, and this is session number 273. Uh, and uh, we are today we get to the rather abrupt ending of the uh, council near the knees of Karathras. Um, so, so that's what we're that's what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, the fell voices on the air. That's of course a quote from Boromir's description of what he heard up in Carathras when the wind was howling about them. And uh, there are yet more fell voices on the air. Uh, let them call it the wind who will. Um, as Aragorn is just about to point out. We paused, of course, last time uh, to have a really fun discussion of Aragorn's presentiment, his uh, his moment of uh, foretelling. Um, and uh, I, I was a, that was a really uh, was a really fun discussion, even though we we ended up um, you know looking ahead quite a bit while um, uh, while talking about it. Obviously, you know, the subsequent events that came up, um, you know, it's hard to think about a prediction like that without thinking about the moment in which that prediction is going to be, um, you know, it's going to be borne out. Uh, so I, uh, I don't apologize for that. Obviously we'll be coming back and thinking about this more when we get there and see it from that perspective. Um, but, um, anyway, yeah, I, 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 um, I thought that was, uh, I still, I thought that was a really fun discussion. So this week we move forward. Um, first, a couple quick announcements. One, we are beginning to get closer to our first fall moot for this year. Um, our first fall moot is Cascade Moot, going to the Pacific Northwest for the first time. Um, so I'll be in Portland, Oregon on the 24th of uh, September, um, the 23rd. Anyway, that weekend, whichever the day it is, the Saturday, um, uh, we will be in Portland, Oregon for Cascade Moot. Um, I hope that you guys will be able to join us. Go to um, uh, go to to, to blackberry.signumuniversity.org as always, uh, and you can find the registration there. Of course, you can join us remotely as well as in person. Again, as always, for all of our moots, um, this is going to be uh, this is going to be a really fun time. We're going to be doing uh, some particular uh, one of the things that the organizers of Cascade Moot wanted to do was do a, a lot of celebration of Ursula Le Guin. Uh, so we're going to be talking about a lot of Le Guin as well as inevitably Tolkien as well uh, during that moot. So that's going to be uh, that's going to be a lot of fun. So looking forward to getting to meet a bunch of folks for the first time at Cascade Moot. Um, but I wanted to remind you guys that it is coming up. So um, definitely, uh, definitely uh, you know, be uh, be making plans for that, and then we move into from there the busy fall moot season to come. Um, so uh, that's one immediate thing that's coming up. Something that's happening even uh, sooner than that, actually, um, is uh, a major milestone. So I was talking last week about the you know last Thursday evening, um, I did my summer update when I where I was talking about the really exciting things that are happening at Signum now. The really exciting things are our coming into the home stretch of our process of applying for accreditation. We have been in the process of working towards accreditation for many, many years now. Um, we have our final evaluation uh, for accreditation. We have the, uh, the last stage. Now, this is not the finish line in the sense of, you know, coming to the end and whipping out the party hats. This is, uh, it's more like... Um, 
you know, when you, uh, when you study for, you know, an entire course of studies and then have your big major final exam at the end. So it's, it's the approach of the final exam is what's happening. Um, but that's still really exciting. Like this is, this is the culminating moment. And yes, as Matt says, there is no finish line. That's, that is certainly true. Um, uh, but anyway, so it's, it's, uh, it certainly is an exciting moment. This is something we've been working towards. Uh, we've been in the active engaged in the active process for over five years now. Um, and, um, we have been, you know, and we were preparing for that for, you know, five to seven years before that. Uh, so it is, um, uh, it is a very, very exciting time, but we do, we do need help. Um, we need to, we need to raise some funds in order to help us pay for the fees, uh, that the end, uh, stretch brings. Um, and our goal is to raise $25,000 uh, to help support our credentialing costs here at the end. Um, so if you go to the link to his fire, just put it up there. Um, you can find it here on the Signum University webpage. Go to signumuniversity.org. Go to the Support Us tab and the Summer 23 Appeal page here. I made a little video. You can watch my video where I'm talking about it. Um, uh, share the page, um, you know, make a donation if you can really appreciate everybody's generosity. Um, we did this before, once before, some of you may remember in 2018 when we began, uh, this process, uh, that was when we were, uh, uh, applying for approval, uh, from the higher education commission in the state of New Hampshire here. Um, we had a, a wonderfully generous response to our, our need for, to, to cover the extraordinary fees, certainly extraordinary in the sense of our normal budget. Um, so, um, uh, so anyway, th that's, uh, just, we've been, uh, really appreciating people's generosity again. Uh, we've already raised about $7,000 in the first few days. Um, so we're well on our way towards our $25,000 goal, but we still, we still have some more need there. So, uh, just wanted to encourage people if you can, uh, to, uh, to reach out and support us there. One thing I will say, there's a donation form on this page. It's not, um, it's a frustrating thing to me. Don't even get me started. Um, it's if you're if you're not in the country, it's going to give you a hard time filling out that form. In that case, just go to the regular donate form, uh, and that one should be okay for international donations. Just send us an email at donate at signumu.org, and we'll know to, you know, uh, count your donation uh, towards our support there. Um, uh, so, um, so there we are. There we are. Um, anyway, so I just wanted to, to bring that to your attention, uh, to thank uh, everybody for your support, everybody who's already given to help support that, um, everybody who's been sort of, uh, you know, part of our community that's been supporting this. You guys have really been, um, I was just having a conversation about this with, um, uh, with the folks at the Higher Education Commission in New Hampshire a couple weeks ago, and they, um, uh, they are, um, they're very... They're always very impressed with Signum. Signum's very unusual, you know. Um, and the thing that they have always had a hard time understanding is how we do it, how we get the support that we get, how we have survived, like how we started up and how we survived, basically. Um, and the answer has always been because of the awesome community of people that we have. Um, so, um, yes, nerd power, Mudmore, that is exactly how uh, Signum has been able to accomplish everything that we've done. So um, anyhow, thank you for your support there. Really appreciate it. Um, and um, 
let's um uh <laughs> Let, let's let's jump into the text and um, and move forward here. Okay, so suddenly Aragorn leapt to his feet. How the wind howls! He cried. It is howling with wolf voices. The wargs have come west of the mountains. Need we may wait until morning? Then said Gandalf. It is as I said. The hunt is up. Even if we live to see the dawn, who now will wish to journey south by night with the wild wolves on his trail? How far is Moria? asked Boromir. There was a door southwest of Carathras, some fifteen miles as the crow flies, and maybe twenty as the wolf runs, answered Gandalf grimly. Then let us start as soon as it is light tomorrow if we can, said Boromir. The wolf that one hears is worse than the orc that one fears. True, said Aragorn, loosening his sword in its sheath. But where the warg howls, there also the orc prowls. Um, just uh, this is, uh, of course, reminds you of that moment when Gimli and uh, Elrond started to get into like the aphorism competition, right? Um, yeah, so the <laughs> the, uh, um, the the dueling um, the dueling rhyming. <laughs> Uh, aphorisms that Aragorn and Boromir exchange here uh, is uh, is cool. So yeah, oh, we've got a lot to talk about here about Boromir and what's going on with Boromir. But first, um, there are several things to notice here. First, they are being chased by wolves. The party is being chased by wolves under the shadow of the mountains um, with the fear that orcs may be soon behind them and that they might be trapped. Now, we we have a paradigm for this. This is familiar to us, should be familiar to us, right? So, I mean, one of the first things that we want to make sure we don't lose sight of, because it's actually given the differences in the whole kind of atmosphere and tone of the two scenes, I find it surprisingly easy to overlook. But yes, this is the out of the frying pan into the fire um, situation, right? Um, we have a an almost, you know, what a, a, a what seems almost like a deliberate callback to that moment in The Hobbit. Now, the question is, What's the effect of that? Why? I, see, I always want to frame it as a why question. Why is not really the right question. Because to say, like, why does Tolkien set up that parallel implies that we're trying to get into his head and figure out what he was thinking at the time, and we can't do that. Um, so I always want to say why. I've, I've, always, I've done this for many, many years. I always want to frame that as a why question. But why isn't really what I mean. What I mean is, what conclusions can we draw from that? What do we see from this from this peril, from this, this peril that has been established. What is the function of this parallel? Um, first of all, one thing that we notice is that, of course, it's not an exact parallel. Um, the wargs have come west of the mountains. Um, Aragorn announces it like that itself is a big deal. Remember, we're going to get a similar issue in, if we remember ahead in just a few um, just a few chapters, right? The questions of whether the orcs are on the west bank of the river or only the east bank of the river is going to be a a, a matter of uh, discussion. 
before too long. Um, so um, this, uh, that idea of a, uh, a sort of a threshold to be crossed, you know, I didn't think things were as bad as that, you know, kind of, kind of thing. Um, however, when I think about the parallel, sit back for a second and let that parallel kind of do its work. Once you observe the similarity, the similarity between the situation, there they are in the woods at night, near the mountains, um, trying to run away on foot from a warg pack that is pursuing them, howlingly pursuing them in the night. Um, once we see that parallel, what does it, what does it lead us to expect? Where does it, where does that take us, right? Um, yeah, JJ, it is interesting. You're right that um, it that it's a kind of reversal, right? Instead of running away from a goblin stronghold, they're running toward one. Yeah, exactly. Um, yes. If we sort of think it through, if once we see the parallel, we might anticipate something along the line of 15 birds and five fur trees, um, as Bob says. And Sphinx, I agree with you. The primary thing that it makes me remember, this is one of the moments, of course, this is, you could even say, I mean, I guess theoretically, of course, Gandalf's rescuing them from the trolls was the very first eucatastrophe, right, uh, in uh, in this world, in The Hobbit. Um, but the arrival of the eagles, right, the eagles, they're a big deal, right? The eagles are a big deal. The eucatastrophic arrival of the eagles at the last moment as everything seemed lost. Um, that is what that moment led to. Right, their sudden escape, and their sudden escape, which then set them down on the right path again. Right um, now, I don't know. Right, you know, this this doesn't mean. Oh, therefore, we know how this incident should end. Right again, if we imagine ourselves as first-time readers here coming across this, this doesn't mean that like oh, like we should be watching for eagles to come. Right, it's and of course, knowing what we know of the story. We know it's not going to duplicate that. Exactly. However, it is for me impossible not to think, not to associate this, this plight that they are in with the eucatastrophe with which it ended in The Hobbit, right? When last we were in this kind of position, it ended with a eucatastrophe. And one of the first times uh, where it seemed clearest that they were being helped along the way, right? Um, that their path was being aided um, by chance, right? Um, of course, when we look backwards from there, we can see it's already been happening. Um, we will get to the point, and of course the narrator of The Hobbit comes to this point uh, at the beginning of chapter 10, as Bilbo is uh, rafting down the river, 
Um, and Gandalf and Bilbo themselves come explicitly to this point in conversation at the end of the final chapter. But um, we can begin to see the pointers that Providence is at work. Um, that luck, as Bilbo keeps calling it and keeps thinking of it, has in fact been shaping their journey all along. And that even the things that seemed particularly unlucky, the things that seemed like everything was going against them, right? That every step along their journey, things kept going wrong. And of course, the larger pattern in The Hobbit was that when you look at all of those things, the derailing of the pass over the mountains by being captured by the goblins, the derailing of fleeing from there by being cornered by the wargs and then flown off by eagles, um, the going through the one path through Mirkwood and ending up leaving the path and getting captured by spiders and then by wood elves, right? All of those things lead up to, as the narrator points out in chapter 10, to in fact all of those particularly unfortunate occurrences which happen time and time again at every stage of their journey end up leading them to the one uniquely safe path from Bag End to the Lonely Mountain and the path which they certainly would never have taken had they not been forced off their planned path uh, which they thought was the best, smartest, and most practical path. Um, but which, of course, in the end, would not actually have worked out and would have only led them to destruction instead. Um, <laughs> Curious Chance is asking if I can put it no planer. Yeah, well, that's exactly it. That's, that's, no, I can I can put it no planer than to say they were meant to get to the Lonely Mountain um, and not, by, not just by Gandalf. Um, so... That moment, the moment, the out of the frying pan into the fire moment is specifically, of course, the catastrophic culmination of that with the eagles. Um, it's um, it's an important moment in kind of understanding the um, uh, the thematic uh, shape of that story. Um, and if you remember, and those of you who have read my Hobbit book may remember that I talked about this. Um, this was one of those things. There were a whole bunch of things that I'd kind of discovered for the first time while writing that Hobbit book. It's the way this usually works, and it's what makes it so much fun. But um, the uh, one of the things was the wind song, which I had never understood at all. Um, uh, in the, the the wind song that the dwarves sing in Bjorn's house, right? Um, like, what the heck are they talking about, and why did they sing that song there? Because it's super long too. Um, anyway. Uh, that song sort of points to this. Um, it's like the dwarves themselves are kind of processing also what has just happened and the kind of destiny that seems to be sweeping them along uh, towards, uh, towards the Misty Mountains, though they themselves don't really seem to kind of follow it up uh, or really get it. But anyway, okay. Um, I see several of you jump getting way ahead of things. We'll get to talking about the wolves. We'll get the, we can't get there from here, can we? Right? Do we have any data about the wolves? No. All we're told here is that it's howling with wolf voices. Aragorn's assertion that the wargs have come west of the mountains. Okay, which is the name with the you know that the word that's used in the Hobbit for the wolves that corner them up the trees. Right. So we're supposed to be specifically remembering that. Um, 
and uh, and and then the association of the wolves with orcs, which of course we don't need Aragorn to tell us about because we already know this from the Hobbit, right? That is literally all we can say right now. So be patient, be patient. Let's not be hasty. Exactly as several of you, <laughs> Scott and Valori, were both saying, um, we'll get there. There will be much to talk about, and I can't wait to talk about the nature of these wolves that are coming after them. But that is not a tonight question. So let's save that. Um, uh, what does Sherlock Holmes say? Um, it's always fatal to speculate uh, in the absence of data. And that is just what we would be doing here. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> right. Guild Alwyn says, we can ascertain that wolves have voices, wolves run, wolves can be heard, and wargs howl. We, the association with orcs. That's about the only other thing I can think of. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, no, Bob, it still won't get a t be a tonight question. It's the, there is a second slide, but it won't do that. Um, okay. Anyway. And, and that we don't like them. Yes. And that... Um, uh, that there is a certain amount of trepidation concerning the wolves is definitely another thing that um, um, that we hear. Um, okay, so um, true, Aragorn doesn't like them. We may or may not be running at our discretion, of course. Um, so having first kind of point, and we'll come back, especially if we get to a second slide, we'll come back to the uh, uh, the Hobbit parallel business. Um, but, um, yeah, Belonksman, that is well remembered. The Shire history and wolves thing, right? Um, yes, that is worth remembering, though. I think the narrator's reminder of it is, um, is yet to come, right? We'll, 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 we'll get back there. Hang on a second. Belonksman, let me think. I know I know that they're in the tale of years. It's mentioned in the passage about the snow. Okay, Hrothgar, thanks. That's what I was I was trying to make sure I wasn't misplacing that passage in my mind. Okay. Right. Right, because in the passage about the snow it says the only Bilbo was old enough to remember that and it mentioned the wolves then. Okay. Yep. Yep. Okay. Great. Great. Um Yes. Great. Um, and in the Shire, it's only wolves. That is an interesting question. Um, and I forget who brought this up a little while ago. Um, uh, yes, Vardendil was pointing out that it's Aragorn who calls them wargs. Um, everyone else says wolves. Boromir says wolf. Um, uh, Gandalf says wolf twice. Um, Aragorn says wolf too. It's howling with wolf voices. Um, and um, and then he says the wargs have come west of the mountains. Kurtzman asks, what is a warg? Um, what I think it is fair, especially in this context, to recall what is said in The Hobbit. Um, we have to be a little careful because not everything in The Hobbit necessarily kind of carries over to The Lord of the Rings. Stone giants, e.g. But um, nevertheless, um, 
And of course, we're in proximity to that uh, exception, so it's relevant. But still, um, the the name the war you know, er, we neither Aragorn nor the narrator needs to explain what that means, right? I mean, first of all, the juxtaposition, it's howling with wolf voices, the wargs have come west of the mountains, tells us, right, that wargs are wolves, right? Um, the fact that he says that, and he says that with a capital letter, suggests that it's a, the, the name of them, like there's a, this is a specific sort of kind of wolf. Um, what we're told in The Hobbit is, um, yeah, it's never really explained, we do know that they are intelligent. They have their own language, which Gandalf understands. Um, Gandalf speaks warg. Well, at least he understands warg. It's not, we never see Gandalf speaking warg, so let me not go so far as that. Um, we know that they are in league with the goblins, and they are, whenever they are talked about there, they are treated as allies of the goblins. They, they join with the goblins in wicked deeds we're told, in The Hobbit. Um, so they're treated not as beasts, like not as, uh, just as steeds or as like domesticated animals or, or slaves or something like that. They're treated as allies. And indeed, of course, we can see that they're treated um, not only as allies, but, well, no, we can see them being treated as allies again explicitly um, in the Battle of Five Armies, right? Um, that is, the, the wolves seem to be counted. Now, trying to figure out what are the five armies exactly that are participating in the Battle of Five Armies is a little bit complicated. Um, but the simplest way to describe that is elves, humans, and dwarves on the one side and wargs and goblins on the other side. Um, uh, so it is, that is probably how in the final text we're supposed to be understood. The eagles, I don't think count. They're not a whole army. Um, uh, and uh, it's complicated because the counting changed. The name of the battle never changed, but the counting changed at various points in the manuscript development. Um, Bjorn led an army of bears uh, in the original draft. And so um, Bjorn, uh, Bjorn's bear army was totally one of the five armies um, at first. So it's not really, it's not really, um, as I say, in the final, I don't think Bjorn technically counts as an army of one Greyhame, though I'm sure if I were face to face with Bjorn I would I would consider him one. Um but um uh anyway, yeah, I uh so in general, the wargs are spoken of in the Hobbit as if they are the allies of the goblins. In other words, they are treated both in the fact that their language is described. Um, you know, they're described as communicating and in, in, in understand they're, they're not merely, you know, irrational, uh, hungry carnivores that have pursued um, the, uh, the, you know, their, their prey and treed them and now are trying to figure out what to do with their treed prey, right? Um, they are rational creatures who are 
attempting to do problem solving, right, uh, and are holding them up in the tree to wait for their allies, the orcs, to come, uh, who will be able to deal with the trees in ways that the wargs know that they themselves are not capable of doing. Um, Aragorn, or it's not Aragorn, sorry, Gandalf in The Hobbit overhears the wargs talking about this, right? So the wargs clearly have much higher, in, uh, Hobbit wargs clearly have much higher intelligence than regular wolves. Um, as sort of solidified uh, by their own um, by their own language, which they have, which Gandalf overhears, and um, they, um, but they are, I will say, although they are treated, I, I've been saying that they're treated um, as allies by um, the, they're treated as allies by the by the orcs by the goblins. They're definitely treated as like second class allies, right? They're not treated as equals by the goblins. Um, the it's it's pretty clear who's the junior partner in this partnership, right? When the goblins show up in the Hobbit, I mean, um, uh, the mere fact that Gandalf through his fire, you know, burning pine cones, is. Um, is kind of getting the best of it and the wargs are all running around in confusion and everything. And then the goblins show up and not only do the goblins show up and totally turn the tables there, um, but they laugh, right? The, the situation which has brought the wargs into, you know, which has confounded the wargs uh, and brought them into like, you know, great fear and uncertainty is considered comical by the goblins. Right. Um, so, um, yeah, yeah, the, 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 the relationship to fire green, great dragon is exactly, um, where we see the, their different approach to like, ah, so there are fires now burning instead of being a problem. This is a fun opportunity, right? The, the way that the goblins are able to handle the situation, turn the weapon of their enemy into, into a tool against them, um, the wargs are clearly intelligent compared to other wolves, but um, uh, but their intelligence is clearly nothing, um, nothing like the intelligence on a very different order from the intelligence of the goblins. And it's equally clear that it's the goblins who are, you know, making the decisions here. Um, but um, anyway, okay, so. Uh, it's fair to recall those things because those are the things that we're kind of importing from The Hobbit. Um, but I would, I would kind of tap the brakes on that just a little bit. Again, Aragorn's reference, the wargs have come west of the mountains. Again, like we should remember them being east of the mountains uh, from when we were in The Hobbit, right? Um, so that's also kind of a reminder that this is not their normal territory. Um, this situation is parallel to the one in The Hobbit, but it's not exactly the same. It's not the same place. It's not the same. And we shouldn't be expecting them to uh, go into the same burned out, you know, end up in the same burned out pine glade or something. They're on the other side of the mountains. Um, so again, Aragorn is recalling that scene to us, but we can't just automatically import everything from The Hobbit. Um, as I said, stone giants, right? Um, uh, if we look back over the Hobbit, you know, sort of the parallels in the Hobbit story, um, 
Karathras is kind of in the parallel position to the stone giants that we got um, in The Hobbit, uh, the rock-throwing stone giants, and that we would have been very wrong just to import from The Hobbit exactly what we saw there, right? So we do need to be cautious. We can't uh, just do that. Um, uh, we can't just do that flippantly, right? Or, uh, uh, you know, it's not a thing we can merely assume. But in as much as the text does seem to be pushing us towards that parallel, it's okay to be remembering it and, um, and, and thinking about it. Um, so, now, let's get to first Remember our flashback. When Boromir heard voices howling in the wind in Carathras, he was very resistant to the idea that the sound was just the wind. Um, Let those call it the wind who will, there are fell voices on the air. And Aragorn, you will remember, said that he does call it the wind, but that does not make what he says untrue. This sense of... um, the sense of mystery there. Aragorn not denying that there are indeed fell voices in the air. Um, is it just the wind, or is it not just the wind? How is it both at once? Um, and the idea that Aragorn suggests that on the one hand, yes, you are hearing the wind howling, but it is howling with a fell voice. There is a fell voice on the air that is speaking through the wind itself. Um, that was one of those moments where we get this in my mind, quite scary uh, idea of Karathras, right? Um, of the giant Karathras, of the 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 being Karathras that is kind of looming over them there, um, in uh, in the mountains. This is it a physical thing? Is it a spiritual thing? I mean, is it a spiritual creature? Is it something that is? Is this a voice that is merely being conveyed to us on the wind? Or is this a fell voice that is being shaped by the wind itself? Right? These were the questions which Aragorn was overtly, like, not resolving. Right? He was, um, his rather cryptic words in response to Boromir really open up those disturbing but unresolved possibilities. Right? Um, so... Um, what is that? Where does that put us here? They were just hearing the wind and hearing the howling of the wind and the description of the howling of the wind. Um, it at first seems they all assume that what they're hearing is the is that it's just the wind, right? Um, how the wind howls, it is howling with wolf voices. Here Aragorn is saying, it is not. He does not call this the wind. Right. Um, This is wolves instead. So we get a contrast to what was said before. Um, But again, I can't, like, what connection does this have with Karathras? They still are, you know by the toes of Karathras, if not actually on his knees, right? So um, Karathras, who was 
apparently, according to Aragorn, manipulating the wind in order to howl at them in a fell voice uh, before. Um, that has been, um, um, you know, I mean, is that is that still operative? Is that what they assumed it was when they heard the howling before? Like, oh, it's just Karathros, pay no mind. And Aragorn's like, nah, oh, no, I, actually, that's wolves. Right. Um yeah, Hrothgar, that is a really, really interesting point. I love that. Hrothgar says, when they entered Eregion, only Legolas could hear the land speak. Now it's a really noisy place, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, Legolas is like, yeah, uh, only the rocks are speaking and I can barely, you know, I, I can't make out much of what they say. And now everyone's like, would the rocks shut up already? Man, It's you can't even talk over the stupid rocks in this place, right? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, that is, I, I, I never thought about it that way before, uh, but that is funny. Now it's just, it's like, you know, r totally run of the mill, right? Oh yeah, no, don't worry about the howling on the wind. It's just the rocks. They do that, you know. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, so, um, good. Um, what are the wargs, you know, um, what drew or sent the wargs west of the mountains? Ambrosius was asking. Um, Aragorn's exclamation indicates this is unexpected behavior. Yes, the wargs have come west of the mountains. He was not expecting that. Now, I saw people earlier on were reminding us very appropriately, we were prepared for this. Um, we were told that the scouts found that there were wolves coming up the Anduin Valley, right? Um, that, I think, is the immediate... So there, there are two things that I think we should associate with Aragorn's proclamation of the wargs coming west over the mountains. One is the Hobbit, but the second are those reports. Um, the scouts found that there were packs of wolves that were roving about on the east side of the mountains in the Anduin Valley. Um, if they have now come west of the mountains, that's different, right? So, um, so yes, that's, um, and that's different, and that's bad news. Uh, uh, that's bad news for them. Um, Notice, by the way, what that also implies. It implies to me that the wargs didn't seem to have any trouble going over the Redhorn Pass in January. Um, presumably they're not coming over it right now through the huge snowdrift that was just thrown up there. Um, but instead, they had come through before and were already over here, but are only now um, that are only now coming in. Um, yes, Bjorning, I do think that's exactly what we're supposed to think, think of. Um, Bjorning says, I would like to note that Elrond sensed the shadow as reaching to the foot of the Misty Mountains. Presumably, Bjorning, the eastern foot of the Misty Mountains, right? I uh, says, do the presence of wargs imply that the shadow reaches farther now? Yes. Yes, it absolutely does. Um, that, I think, is what Aragorn is thinking when he makes that proclamation there. Um... Um, yes, several people are su suggesting they might have come up through the Gap of Rohan. It is possible. The reason I don't think that likely, I mean, it, it's conceivable, of course. We can't rule that out. We know that Saruman has wargs, and he's at the Gap of Rohan. Um, but I don't think so for two reasons. One, I don't think he's deploying armies of wargs, because he needs the wargs 
to fight his war in Rohan. Um, that's where he's going to be using his wargs there. Um, I think the Krabine are from Saruman. Um, I don't think that the wargs are from Saruman. Uh, the other reason that I don't, th- is that I get, we've been reminded about the wolves east of the mountains. Aragorn, I think, by saying they have come west of the mountains, um, Wargs that like whose home base is essentially in the gap of Rohan at Isengard, like them coming west of the mountains is like they could do that before breakfast. Right. So that's not a that's not a big deal. Again, I think he's thinking of the wolves, um, you know, the, the wolves that were spotted by the scouts that we heard about before. Um, he seems to connect them with those. And this is news. It's news that they've come west. They weren't west of the mountains before. And exactly as Bjorning was recalling, um, Elrond's perception, his sort of spiritual perception, that the shadow of Sauron had come to the feet of the mountains, that seems to be outdated now. I do think that that's what we're supposed to see, that now um, the shadow is reaching uh, at least over, perhaps through or under, the mountains, um, the shadow has come to the western side of the mountains, and they are they are no longer safe. Um, so, um, so that's why I suspect that the wargs in question here are not wargs that have been sent up by Saruman through the Gap of Rohan, um, but wargs that have been um, uh, that have come over one pass or other, possibly the Redhorn Pass, possibly the pass up by the Gladden Fields. Um, that these are the wargs that were spotted by the scouts over there. Um, so have they been sent? Well, Gandalf thinks so. Um, need we wait until morning then? Says Gandalf snarkily. Right. Remember Frodo has just said, let's sleep on it and wait until morning. Gandalf will get votes easier, you know, in the sunlight. Right. Um, so Gandalf's like, Gandalf sort of, I think kind of half jokingly is like calling the vote here, right? So shall we vote now, right? With the wolves bearing down on us? What do y'all think, you know, what do y'all think now? And then he says, as Gandalf is kind of want to say, it is as I said, <laughs> right? Gandalf is kind of a big I told you sower. He does that a lot. Um, it is as I said, the hunt is up. Even if we live to see the dawn, who will now wish to journey south by night with the wild wolves on his trail? Right. Um, all of that is directed uh, at Boromir. Right. At least, you know, need we wait until morning then is sort of directed at Frodo or at least responding to what Frodo said. Um, but... Um, Boromir was the only one who was suggesting journeying south um, towards the Gap of Rohan, towards, you know, um, I, you know, Losarnach and the south of, uh, of, of Gondor, right? Um, you know, toward, towards Dol Amroth. Um, and so he says, you know, uh, who will now wish to journey south? Now, no, notice that Gandalf, although he is snarkier than Boromir, um, Gandalf is both snarkier and shorter-tempered than Boromir. He is also being somewhat diplomatic here, right? He is not... He doesn't... He says, I told you so. 
but he doesn't call out Boromir, right? He doesn't say, I told you so, Boromir, right? Um, you know, nor does he say, like, so, Boromir, still want to go south? Huh? Still think that's a good plan? No. Even though he is saying... Now, you will remember that just a couple minutes ago, I said that we can't possibly go south. Um, and you'll remember when we talked about that, we were talking about how Gandalf clearly has a different sense of how imminent their danger is. He believes that stealth is done, that they cannot possibly, they are going to be pursued, and that there's no way that they could possibly remain safe and undiscovered on a long overland journey when they're being pursued. In Gandalf's mind, at this point, stealth is completely impossible. They have blown the stealth. The beacon that he lit on the top of, you know, not the top of, but up on the slopes of Carathras has in Gandalf's mind completely put paid to the very potential um, for uh, for secrecy, right? That's why he says, it is, as I said, the hunt is up. Um, it's, we, we've been hunted. We've been spotted. He knew they were spotted. He didn't know that they would be pounced upon quite as quickly as this. But he is saying that this is exactly what he had been fearing and why he was saying why he w it was now so very convinced of the thing of which he you know says he had a a notion from the very beginning that they were going to have to go to moria this is also i believe aragorn seems also to um accept gandalf's assertion that moria is the only viable option now um even though he does so with kind of a bad grace, still grumping about Moria to a, a, a pretty significant degree. Um, uh, Ilmeniel says, was it the fire that gave them away? Yes, the fire? His magic? That's what Gandalf implies? Um, uh, sort of both, right? Um, and yes, Jeffrey, you are absolutely right that Boromir was free to still break off now and head south if he wanted to. Um, but even Boromir would have to admit that that is now no longer an option, right? I mean, essentially, I feel like what Gandalf's statement here, what his I told you so boils down to here is, I told you so that Moria is the only path we can possibly take, right? Who would want to go there? Gimli accepted, right? No, it's not a good idea. No, it's not a safe path. No, it's not a sensible thing to do. But it is now clearly our only road, and therefore, clearly the road that we ought to take. Um, um, yeah, yeah. So, um, the hunt is up, Maureen, literally means... Um, well, there are two ways I can think to understand that, that expression. One is that, like, uh, you know, the hunt is, you know, in full stride after them. Um, the other way of understanding it is that, like, the hunt is over. Um, the hunt is up. So, like, when you're hunting, right, 
there are there are a couple stages to the hunt. Right, the first step when you're hunting something is to find it. Like before you can chase it or kill it, you have to find it. Right, um, and um, once you found it, then you have to, you know, catch it. You know, you have to track it and catch it, and then kill it. Um, you could say that the killing of it is uh, arguably a third stage, right? Um, they're the ones being hunted. Yes, he's talking about the hunting of them. And he's saying um, they were being hunted before, right? The hunt was on previously, right? But now the hunt is up. Um, this isn't a hunt anymore. Before they were being hunted, and they were that's why they were hiding, right? Because, they, because Gandalf knew that they were being hunted. Now they're being chased, that's different from being hunted, right? Now, the dogs have their scent and are on their trail. So it's not a hunt anymore, it's a chase now. And that is, I think, what Gandalf is trying to tell them here. Um, which, again, is why he's saying it is as I said. That's what he was trying to tell them before when he was trying to explain to Boromir why, although it might seem sensible, the... Uh, the suggestion of going south all the way around the White Mountains is an insane plan that is, you know, more impossible than knocking at the gates of the Dark Tower itself, right? Um, because they're being chased and there's no way that they can possibly escape. Um, yeah, okay, so... Yeah, even if we live to see the dawn... Um, he puts the waiting until dawn thing into a very new context, right? Boromir responds to Gandalf. How far is Moria? Um, and this is interesting. That's a concession. Boromir's not going to argue with him. Boromir can see. Yes, clearly, that is the only option, right? Um, and he is immediately thinking practically, how far is Moria? Um, clearly, his question boils down to, could we get there, could we get underground before the wargs get to us, right? Um, or is it far enough away that we really don't have a chance of that? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, it's time to go to ground, Amare. It's like they're the foxes, right? Um, yes, yes. Um, Bjorning, it is a stunning turnaround for Boromir, but again, in my normal role of Boromir apologist, I will say he has been practical all along, right? Um, uh, <clears throat> He's been practical all along. And I give him credit for not being stubborn here. I mean, we were seeing how last time, um, you know, during the final stages of the pre-Wolf debate, um, he was still making suggestions that were... Um, he wasn't trying to divide the party, right? He wasn't... Um, he wasn't just stomping off in a huff or, or, or something like that, but he was definitely... Um, now making suggestions explicitly contrary to um, 
the direction that the leader was wanting to take them in, right? Um, but yeah, he 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 here Sphinx exactly right. Um, he wasn't wrong. There's no reason for him to think he was wrong. But the circumstances have now changed, and that's exactly what he's going to point out. The wolf that one hears is worse than the orc that one fears. When he talks about the orc that one fears, he's talking about Moria, right? He believes that Moria is full of orcs. The name of Moria is black, and I think that's why, right? Um, and, uh, I mean, he's heard stories about the orcs of Moria. There are lots of those, like with the Dwarf Wars, and that was a long time ago, and um, and then the, the Battle of Five Armies, but that was a long time ago. Um, uh, yeah. So, yes, he thought, and remember that he was comparing it he compared going into Moria to going and knocking at the gates of the Black Tower, you know, the Dark Tower itself. And again, which also, by the way, the Dark Tower, kind of full of orcs, right? And worse things, but um, but orcs at least. Um, so he thought, again, if, um, you know, we don't know what, he expects he being Sauron, right? We don't know what he expects. Um, you know, he may watch all roads, in which case going into Moria is as bad as walking into Mordor, right? Um, so yeah, yeah, he that was what he was very rationally concerned about, and his reasons for not wanting to go into Moria make perfect sense, right? Um, uh, but now things are changed. Now they are definitely in trouble. They are definitely in trouble, and uh, although he has good reason to fear orcs in Moria, um, the orc that, the, the wolf that one hears is worse. Um, but let's not pass over the sentence that he says before that, right? Um, how far is Moria? Asked Boromir. So again, he's He's conceding, like, yep, no, you're right, we can't possibly go south. I get it. There is now clear and imminent danger, and we have to, uh, you know, we need to take shelter. Um, and can we get there before the wolves get to us? Right. Um, and notice he's also asking that in a way um, not intended to freak out any halflings who might be standing nearby, right? Um, how far is Moria? Gandalf's grim answer is, there was a door southwest of Carathras, some 15 miles as the crow flies, and maybe 20 as the wolf runs. Um, yeah, yeah. Notice um, Notice his comparisons, his very ominous comparisons, right? Um, he's measuring it by the running of the wolves that are chasing them, and he's measuring it also by the flight of the crows that were hunting for them before. Um, neither of these are positive images. Right. 
Um, he's like, let me tell you how far away potential safety is. And by potential safety, I mean the death trap we were all just talking about a minute ago. Um, let me tell you how far away that is in units of measure defined by our enemies hunting and pursuing us. Right. Um, and Jackie, it absolutely does suggest that the crows and the wolves are related in Gandalf's mind. Yes. That both of them are hunting for them. Um, there is no... I, I, I think there, there's... Just as there was no... There is no reasonable doubt that the 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 genocide of crows that flew over them in Eregion, it was clearly not a natural flock, right? This was not a um, a spontaneous um, this, this is not spontaneous avian behavior. Um, they were searching out the land, as Aragorn somewhat tentatively says to Sam. Um, that was clearly what was going on there. Um, and uh, so, yeah, there was something happening there. Gandalf is equally convinced that the wolves are being sent after them. They've been hunted by crows and by wolves, and now the wolves have found them. Um, the howling suggests it. The howling suggests it. Of the wolves, I mean. Wolves don't just randomly howl, right? <laughs> Tutu's man says, Spontaneous Avian Behavior is the name of my new prog rock band. Okay, I can get behind that. Um, yeah. So, we can't be too rash in the conclusions that we draw. Um, but Jackie, I do believe that the association that Gandalf makes between the crows and the wolves here um, suggests very clearly that Gandalf sees them. I don't, I don't necessarily think that this proves that he sees them um, I don't think it necessarily proves that it's not true that one was sent by Saruman and the other sent by Sauron necessarily, right? I don't think it suggests they're on precisely the same team in exactly that way. Just that they're both hunting them. Right? Um, they've now found two things. They've now faced three enemies, one of whom is thankfully immobile, though inconveniently placed, namely the mountain, Carathras. Um, but the other two are highly mobile and after them. Right? Now, we don't know that the Crows are coming after them right now. Um, uh, again, we don't necessarily... I don't think we can assume from this that Gandalf believes the two of them to be, like, immediately uh, coordinated together, right? Um, but they're both their enemies. Um, to me, the effect of him using these uh, units of measure, right... The uh, number of miles that the wolf runs and the number of miles that the crow flies, it has an interesting effect. On the one hand, he's saying it's pretty close to here. I mean, like 20 miles, a 20 mile trek is not terribly bad news, 
they could get there reasonably quickly, but not at a sprint. Um, it's not that close. And there's no way they're getting there before the wolves catch them. Um, the wolves can run a lot faster, right? So, on the one hand, he's saying that it's close. But at the same time, by using those units of measure, he is saying it is way too far away. There is, there is no chance. There is no chance that we can get there before the wolves catch us. That's why Aragorn, or sorry, Gandalf, is so grim about it, right? Now, I also, I don't want to skim over. Several people have pointed out the rather ominous statement, there was a door southwest of Carothros. Like, was is not necessarily particularly inspiring, right? Um, uh, yeah. Um, there's a certain there's a certain element of I'm making no promises to that verb tense that are slightly disquieting, um, but um, we'll see, <laughs> right? We'll see. Um, look at Boromir's response. Now back to Boromir's first sentence. Then let us start as soon as it is light tomorrow, if we can. Um, is Boromir in charge? Doesn't that kind of sound like the thing that the person in charge would say? Right? Now, I'm not saying this so as to imply that I believe um, that Boromir is here just absolutely hijacking the company. But this is a pretty firm suggestion, right? Um, yeah, I agree, Kurtzimus. He would be more... If these were his soldiers, he would be more imperative than this, right? We will stay here until morning or something like that. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, suggesting with emphasis, Silk Westcott, I agree with that, right? Um, the most important thing here is that Boromir is showing he's on, this, he's on the same team, right? He's not... I, I, I take this in general as a very positive thing. Um, let us. It's still it's still we, right? He's saying, I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm with you, and we are in this together. Let us start tomorrow if we if we can. We must band together to face this. I agree with you now about the path. Um, I thought you were wrong before. Um you know, other things being equal, I would probably still think that you're wrong. But under the current circumstances, with being pursued by wolves, clearly this is the best path that we can do. So I'm on board. I'm not fighting with you. It's going to be okay, is one thing, right? Again, you, I, you, you have my support. But at the same time, he is also... Compare this... It is a suggestion, but I agree with Silk Westcott that it's a suggestion with emphasis. Contrast this line with his line about the firewood. Um, no preamble, no, like, if I could make a suggestion, you know, because I have experience in the mountains and stuff, um, uh, maybe we should consider doing this thing. Right, he's not talking that way anymore. Let us start as soon as it is light tomorrow. If we can, he's the one to suggest a course of action, right? When Gandalf gives him the data, here's how far away we are. 
Boromir immediately suggest, is the one to suggest the course of action. He is taking a stronger hand. He is now being a firmer voice in the leadership of the company and the decision making of the company than he um, than he was before. Like that seems to me pretty clear, right? Um, and again, and nobody nobody opposes him. Nobody, you know, shoots him down for it. And again, I think one of the primary reasons for that is he is also he is doing that while also saying, "I'm with you." Right. I'm not like, let's not fight. I'm not going to argue. We're working together here. Right. Um, let us start as soon as it is light tomorrow, if we can. Um, what does that, what is he saying? What does that suggestion boil down to? Um, as a suggestion, it's still fairly vague. Right. It's still fairly vague. What's he, um, because remember, we just talked about there have been, this is the third reference to dawn tomorrow, right? The first was Gandalf's snarky comment, need we wait until morning then, right? Like Gandalf's snarky derailing of the whole voting question, right? But then he adds, even if we live to see the dawn. Gandalf has already asserted those wolves are obviously going to be with us before dawn. Right? We're going to be beating off wolves before dawn. Clearly. Which is why Boromir asks how far it is. Could we, you know, uh, any chance we could get there in, oh, I don't know, the next 45 minutes, right? <laughs> like, that's, that's kind of Boromir's question, right? 20 miles away? Okay, no. No. So, um, on the one hand, it seems it feels it seems almost like a contradiction. Gandalf says, hey, we don't need to wait until morning. We might not live to see the dawn. The hunt is up. We gotta get going. And Boromir's response is, great. So let's wait. Let's camp here until dawn. But of course, do you see what he's suggesting? Right? There is a 0% chance that they are going to escape before the wolves catch them. So, they'd be better off waiting and fighting off the wolves right here where they are. Right? The wolves are going to catch... They're either going to run them down from behind as they vainly attempt to run towards the mountains in the dark, or the wargs could catch them prepared to fight them off. Right? And that's why when he says, when Boromir says... Let us start as soon as it is light tomorrow, if we can. That's a very gentle way of saying, assuming we survive the wolf attack that is now pretty much guaranteed to happen this evening, um, then we'll, we'll start, you know, we can probably get there over the course of the day, of the one day. You know, while it's daylight tomorrow, if we leave at dawn... If we A, survive, and B, leave at dawn, then we'll probably get there before dark. So that's great. Um, but um, uh, but first, we're going to have to survive until the dawn. Um, and Boromir, again, he's being very gentle in suggesting this. He's not being alarming. Um, everybody is not panicking here, right? Um, 
Indeed, the fact that Boromir is looking ahead towards plans for tomorrow is itself intrinsically optimistic, right? Um, Aragorn clearly picks up what he's putting down. That's why Aragorn loosens his sword in its sheath. It's going to get used soon, which is a big deal, by the way, right? Um, Enduro has never been drawn in the face of an enemy before. So that's kind of a big deal. Um, yeah, Dan, you're absolutely right that Boromir knows that if they can pick their battleground, they stand a better chance of fighting off the wolves. That's exactly, that's exactly it. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, okay. So, um, um, then he says his thing. The wolf that one hears is worse than the orc that one fears. I believe, I believe that both Boromir and Aragorn are making these up. I don't think that that's a saying. I don't think that that's a standard thing. It rhymes, so it sounds like it, right? Um, but I very much doubt that they have a saying in Gondor. The wolf that one hears is worse than the orc that one fears. Um, on the one, there, here are the reasons why I don't believe that. Reason number one. Um, I Are there wolves? Like, do the wargs who are allies with the goblins and associated with orcs come down to Gondor much? Like, has that, has that been a thing? I don't see much reason to believe that it would be, necessarily. Secondly, from a Gondorian military context, is that even a saying that makes sense? The wolf that one hears is worse than the orc that one fears? Like, would they say that? Right? I mean, like, maybe it's conceivable, um, but um, uh, I, I, don't, I don't think so. I think that he's saying it possibly accidentally, possibly, um, it sounds spontaneous to me. Um, yeah, wolves were in the Vale of the Anduin. Yeah, like way north of, of Gondor. Like, do they come south of Rauros? Is that, is that, is that a thing? Does that happen a lot? Like, I mean, maybe it's conceivable. Um, but the only wargs that we hear of are in the Anduin Valley. I mean, just mostly from the Hobbit, of course. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, but um, but anyway, yeah. I I I I think that this is a spontaneous utterance by Boromir. Um, the wolf that one hears is worse than the orc that one fears. Um, I think it's a spin. I don't think it's exactly accidental. I think he starts saying it and then, you know, the rhyme occurs to him and he, uh, and he, and he bangs it out. It is also possible as, um, uh, uh who was it? Um, one of y'all, Vardendil. um, was suggesting that that this might be another uh, Findegill King's writer moment, right? When he's like, you know, it would be cooler, 
right? What would be cooler is if Boromir and King Alessar, you know, spoke in like uh, opposing rhyming, you know, couplets here. That would be cool, right? That would really, that would really elevate this moment to like the heroic pitch that it, that would really capture it better, right? Um, I think that that's possible. But I do think it's possible uh, that Boromir would in fact have the wherewithal to um, um, to make that up on the spot. And I definitely think that Aragorn... That would mean, by the way, if I'm right about this, that Aragorn is, in a sense, rap-battling him. Yes. That he is deliberately responding to Boromir's rhyme by composing another rhyme on the spot. Um, what they're saying is pretty clear, right? Concrete, actual danger that we know to be near us is worse than worse danger that we are not 100% sure is there, right? And Aragorn says, yes, but where there are wolves, there are probably arcs, right? You know, like, uh, um, you know, it never rains, but it pours, um, he's saying. Um, yeah, well, they're not exactly... I see, I hesitate to go so far, Abelard's drunks, to say they're spitting bars because they're spitting, like, a bar each, right? I mean, it's it's uh, pretty low-key uh, as... Uh, as uh, as you know, ciphers are concerned, but um, in any case, um, what is the effect of the rhyme? Why would you do this? Why would either Boromir and Aragorn or Findegil King's writer think that a little rhyming couplet? Is appropriate here. What does it convey? What does it, what does it do? Right. Um, what is the effect of the rhyme? The effect. Notice the effect that it had on all of you. Right. The effect that it had on all of you is exactly Eadric. That's exactly it. It's the form of an aphorism. It conveys wisdom. Yes, it sounds like a pro they make it sound like a proverb, right? They are stating a thing which is not which they believe to be not just relevant to their circumstances, but they are pointing to how the thing that they're saying is a piece of general wisdom, right? Um, like something you might hand down. It might become a proverb after this, right? Um, it is not hard to imagine any or all of the hobbits uh, using these as proverbs or aphorisms in their, you know, later life, right? Um, I mean, can you imagine, uh, you know, Sam saying the wolf that one hears is worse than the orc that one fears, uh, you know, to his kids 20 years from now? I sure can, right? Um, where the warg howls, there also the orc prowls. You know, can you see Mayor Sam bringing that up in a, uh, you know, in a in a in a, in a town meeting? I can. Um, uh, yes, and um, 
And oh my goodness, you are completely right. JJ, that settles it for me. Escaping goblins to be caught by wolves, he said. And it became a proverb, though now we say out of the frying pan into the fire in the same sort of uncomfortable situations. In the parallel scene in The Hobbit, Bilbo does spontaneously utter an expression which is then taken as a proverb, we're told, later on, right? That it became a proverb. J.J., presumably because he himself kept saying it, right? He must have been, since he was the only one in the Shire who was there, if it caught on in the Shire, it caught on because of Bilbo, right? Um, so it became a proverb, though, if he does say so himself. So we already have, again, in the parallel scene, the spontaneous utterance of someone that becomes a proverb. And these are better, right? We already did a spontaneous proverb in The Hobbit, but these sound even more proverbial, right? Um, yeah, Valori, yes, is it possible that um, the aphoristic quality of the statements that were in the original Red Book struck the ear of um, Findigil, right? Like, oh, those things that they just said could become proverbs, but they'd be snappier with rhyme, right? So let me put rhyme in. Um, uh, very possible. Very possible. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> the rhyme that one hears is more memorable than a word that appears, <laughs> says Bond. Yeah, something like that. Something like that. Um, um, but yeah, Leaf of Starlight, I agree. My vote would be that this is what they actually, that these were actually spontaneous utterances. Um, I think that they are both clever enough for that. Um, and I don't know, how, how, haven't you ever done this before? Hasn't this ever happened to you? When you start saying something and like you hear, like, you can hear, like you get halfway through a sentence and then you can see how you can end it to make it sound cooler, right? Like the beginning of Boromir's line, the wolf that one hears, um, uh, you know, he wants to say the, the wolf that one hears is worse. I mean, he by using one, he's generalizing it, right? So, I mean, his, his intention is to make it aphoristic, right? Um, and... Um, um, yeah, so he starts with the wolf that one hears is worse, and then like it's 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 not a big leap, right? You can find your way from there. Um, I don't think that he necessarily like stops and thinks up the rhyme, right? Like kind of you know puzzles it out and then and then utters the rhyme again. I don't I don't think you have to. I don't think you have to say that. Um, uh, yeah, but um, anyway. Um, and and it, if once it was done for Aragorn to imitate it uh, I know plenty of people who would be clever enough to pull that off I think um, like I said I mean compared to a rap battle this is grade school stuff right um, so, um, so yeah yeah um, and yes, Boromir is used to public speaking, um, and Aragorn is clever and well-read. Um, so, um, 
So yeah, yeah, I, 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 I do not at all have a hard time believing that these are, are uh, you know, spontaneous utterances by them. Um, but, um, uh, but I'm also, I don't object to the idea of Findigil dressing this up a little bit. Um, ah, Dan says we have no reason to think that these bars actually rhymed in the original Westron. No, actually, I think we do, Dan. I think we do. Because I think that the, um, see that, uh, my explanation there, Dan, would be that this is why if we go back to the Hobbit line, right? Escaping goblins to be caught by wolves. That doesn't sound really catchy. Like a, a really, like a really catchy proverb. It was catchier in the Westron, right? There was probably, you know, some like alliteration or, or wordplay or something that's lost in translation there, right? But here, the translator, our modern translator, right, Tolkien, um, I could see that the proverbs rhymed in Westron. So he's like, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna replicate the rhyme. Um, in order to convey, you know, the uh, the aphoristic quality of these uh, of these statements, yeah, yeah, um, totally, totally, um, exactly. Leave of Starlight was just saying the same thing, exactly. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, notice, by the way, Aragorn. Once again, um, being a bit of a downer, right? Um, Boromir's proverb is um, perfectly appropriate. Nothing, nothing wrong with that, right? Uh, good, uh, good salutary moral for the moment. Um, it agrees with Gandalf's conclusion. It, this is his explanation for why he's going along, right? Um, notice also there, maybe just a hint of, Gandalf, I am not saying that I believe your assessment of this whole situation, you know, is correct from beginning to end, but it is only common sense to do the thing that you're suggesting now that we do, right? Um... Uh, but um, <laughs> but um, Aragorn's response: Where the warg howls, there also the orc prowls. Bit of a downer. Again, Ar Aragorn kind of does this, doesn't he? Um, the present danger the danger that you know is the lesser danger that you know is present is worse than the greater danger that you're less than 100% sure of right okay sure that's great but aragorn says however where that lesser danger is the greater danger is probably right on its heels thanks aragorn that's great appreciate that right um he's had a run of these for several pages, ever since Carothros, Aragorn has been in this uh, this gloomy rut. He does take after Bard. Yeah, he does. He does take after Bard. Um, um, 
Now, again, you could say it is merely... Now, like, the combination of that with loosening his sword in its sheath is slightly encouraging, right? I mean, his attitude is clearly not one of despair or even of despondency, but of, of warning, right? <clears throat> um, like, yes, but don't think that we've escaped the larger danger, because we probably haven't. If the wargs are here, the orcs are probably close. Just ask, you know the nephew of Bilbo over there, what he read in the Red Book, right? Um, yeah, yeah. But, um, uh, but he, yeah, he is, so he's expecting the worst, though he's expecting the worst with a kind of grim confidence loosing his sword in its sheath, right? Um, and yes, Vardendil, I absolutely agree. Grimness is associated with kings a lot in Tolkien. From Bard through Aragorn, right? Kings are often grim. That, that happens, right? Um, it is a soldier's resignation to battle, in a sense, Bjarnasonar. Um, but... Um, uh, but yeah, he, um, and I, you know, I think he's also, it's a response to Boromir too, right? Um, Boromir is clearly resolved for battle and Aragorn is saying, we're probably going to end up fighting goblins too, as indeed they will. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, How does Aragorn's grimness fit in with his association with Estill? It's a great question. Um, one thing that I would point out. Aragorn's... Aragorn is associated with Estelle by other people and for other people. Right? Um... His mother gave Estelle to the Dunedain. But she didn't say anything about him having Estelle. Right? I'm not saying Aragorn doesn't have it. But I think we need to be careful not to assume that the fact that Aragorn was called Estelle as a child means that he himself is always and without fail a paragon of Estelle. Um, the Estelle in question when he was a kid, was the Estelle that the other Dunedain can have, right? Um, uh, so, I want to be a little bit careful about that. Also, I can't help but point out we have no idea that Aragorn is associated with Estelle. And I don't think Tolkien did either. Um, when do we learn that? When do we learn that Aragorn was named Estelle? Appendix A, right? Um, Tolkien didn't write it, and I don't think he even thought it before now. I mean, that Appendix A stuff is clearly late. Um, there are some there's some material in the appendices that is just as clearly early material that he took out uh, from the text and shoved into the appendix, as he was threatening to do with some of Faramir's talk, and as he tragically did not do. Um, 
in regards to things like the Hobbit custom of chucking their dirty dishes out of window. Um, however, he um, all but the stuff about Hobbit architecture did, in fact, get into the appendix and the prologue. Um, but um, but in any case, um, he uh, the Estelle stuff is in the context of the story of Aragorn and Arwen. And that's very late. So Aragorn gets retroactively associated with Estelle by Tolkien. That doesn't mean it's not appropriate to think about him, but I would not take it as a guiding principle as we read through the story here. Um, so I think we have to be a little bit cautious about that. And I certainly agree with the th things that several people are saying um, that um, uh, with, yeah, with the, the things that several people are saying that Estelle doesn't necessarily mean sunny cheerfulness. Um, yeah. I mean, remember that arguably the greatest statement of Estelle was uttered by the guy who was being dragged off to Morgoth's prison um, with his entire troop and family dead around him, right? Well, not all of his family. Um, so Estelle is not um, certainly associated at all points with cheerfulness. Um, and yes, Are and Tulava is, of course, exactly what I am thinking of. Um, Hurin in the Fens of Serek. Uh, but, um, um, anyway, yeah. So let's, um, d don't, d don't force Estelle, or certainly it would be inappropriate to come to the text, to come to things that Aragorn does, things, even things that Aragorn says, and be looking for Estelle in it, right? Um, that's not the case. He is not an allegorical figure or something. And I know none of you or all of you are, you know, have been well taught by Tolkien and are not going to make this into a personification allegory. But notice, that's the kind of thinking that name invites it, right? Um, you know, names names are the great, it's, it's one of the allegory triggers, right? When you find a character with what seems like an obviously allegorical name, right? I mean, if you're in a story and somebody comes up to you and says, Hi, my name is Faith, right? You, you might know where you are, right? You might have a thing or two you might expect of that person, right? Um, uh, exactly, Josh. This is not Pilgrim's Progress. Love that line in Pilgrim's Progress. My name is Honest, and I hope I am. Right. Um, the, the, one of the delightful things about Pilgrim's Progress as an allegory is that the, the characters in Pilgrim's Progress know they're in an allegory. Right. And that, that's always a lot of fun. Um, I love Pilgrim's Progress. I love allegory. I'm not ashamed. I do not cordially dislike allegory. I love it. Um, uh, but again, we... we it's, it is not only because Tolkien disagrees with allegory, which, again, I think is not even true. 
Tolkien wasn't good at allegory. Um, uh, he did try to write it, and it didn't go well. Um, but in any case, I think that we have to. The reason to be careful of it is simply I, I don't think it's I don't I don't think it works. I don't think it's appropriate, um, and it can kind of sneak in, right? Um, but um, anyway, I I, I, and I I know you guys aren't suggesting allegory. I don't want to make it sound like I'm accusing anybody of that. Um, that's obviously a simplification. But again, because we all, to some extent, have some basic concept of personification allegory, right? Um, of how that kind of story works. And so it, when you latch onto the idea, Aragorn is named Estelle. Like, he is Estelle. There are moments, and this has come up in our conversations before when we've talked about this. There are ways in which all you have to do is say his name in the context of making an observation of the thing, and it it starts to take on quasi-allegorical overtones. It's, it's, it's almost inevitable. It's very hard to resist that kind of thinking with these particular names. Um, um, yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway... Um, so I'm just that kind of thinking um, that says because he's named Estelle, he must represent it, demonstrate it, show it, be connected with it. Like it's um, whether one is thinking of it explicitly or not, that kind of thinking creeps in um, almost, almost inevitably. <coughs> um, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, all right. Um, yeah, I was, uh, I was thinking there might be just time to peek at the next slide, at the second slide. Um, but there's not, but then I started talking about allegory and it was all over. Um, uh, yeah. Oh man. Silk Wesket. Now I totally want a story with a character named Al Agori. Yeah, totally, totally. Um, yeah. Um, oh, Arden Cran, how far can a wolf's howl carry on the wind? Miles, but not that far. Um, yeah. Miles, um, miles, but not uh, not much further than that. Um, they're almost certainly fewer than twenty miles away already. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, let's let's do our field trip. It's field trip time. Thanks, everybody. Uh, those of you who can only stay for book discussion, thanks for joining us. And in our field trip today, we're heading back to Tharbad, where we keep losing our horses, and I can't figure out why. But here we are. Thanks, everybody. Valori, good evening tonight. Good evening. Glad you could make it this Hi. week. Yeah, me too. Hope my uh, streak of bad luck is uh, on its way out for now. Yeah, yeah, good, good. So uh, just a note on Aragorn's uh, 
being a negative Nelly through most of this. We have seen him be cheerful. He was sort of the chief morale officer when it was taking the hobbits to Rivendell. Yes. Yes. That was a different case. He wasn't very good at some of the jokes, but he did his <laughs> right. love that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I agree. I agree. It is. It's almost, you know, the vague impression that I get is that we can see, because you, you know how we've been noticing how Gandalf is being so conscious of the morale of the hobbits that at times he's almost overdoing it, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, he's and, Gandalf, he overdoes everything. Right. It's almost as if Aragorn is deliberately counterbalancing that. You know, it's like now that Gandalf is here to, you know, <laughs> kind <a> of. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, he's being um, he's being he's he's being more like uh, more like Sam. Um, yeah, he's giving uh, voice to the other side of things. Um, yeah, he's going, you be positive. I'll be realistic. Yeah, well, you know, he will. um and I, I, yeah, I don't know. Like I said, I'm not 100% sure exactly how to take it, but I agree there's, um, um, there is, uh, it, that difference is striking. And again, the difference seems to me to be Gandalf and Gandalf's presence, mm-hmm. you know? Um, yeah. So. Uh, you- you can yeah. see that mounting frustration in Boromir as he's trying to get them to do anything. Yeah. And it's it's just, he's gotten to the point where it's like, Mommy, Daddy, stop fighting. Let's all go to bed. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, like so... He, he oh. almost feels like the old... It's like, since Legolas and Gimli aren't speaking up, he's sort of got, like, the oldest kid problem where he right. has to sort of... You know, he knows he's not in charge, but, you know, he's he's old enough to speak his mind at this point. Yes. Yes. So, by the way, I came up with a theory about this building last time. OK. Let's OK. So this was this 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 took a while. But here are the results of our inquiries from last time. So um, I went we went through and we went all the way through to the far gate and we found there an interesting thing. And that is yeah. the larger, fancier paving stones of the Greenway coming up like the same, the, the big paving stones that we see down in Enidwyth and Dunland, right? Yeah. Um, those are there on the other side of the city and they end right at the gate, the south gate of Tharbad. Which okay. clearly shows that's the end of Gondorian jurisdiction and Tharbad is mm-hmm. the beginning of Arnorian jurisdiction, right? Yep, I mean, I sense. think that that seems clearly to be the indicator there. Um, so my theory, I was, I was, I started last time with the puzzling question, what is this building that is so close to the city on the one hand, like it doesn't, like it could be some kind of like, um, rich person's residence. Like that's certainly possible, but I mean, it's awful close to the city for that. I mean, if you're going to come out here and build a separate building, maybe, you know, not right under the walls. Like it just seems like a weird place to build a, um, to build a, a house simply. So I was thinking there's got to be some kind of function to it, but it would also be a strange place to build a, 
you know, a rest area. Um, you know, we were talking. So the one one theory that it it, it could be like a you know Arnor welcomes you center. Um, yeah. But again, even there, you'd think they'd do that in the city. I mean, you will come through the city from Gondor and then get welcomed on the far side of the city. Like that's just weird. So yeah, the um, the my theory was um, that uh, it's a it's a customs house. It's a tax collector's oh, yeah. booth. Yep. Which they they were civil enough not to put, the, and and that makes Tharbad like the duty free zone, right? <laughs> so Tharbad is the duty free zone when you're coming from Gondorian territory to Arnorian yeah. territory. But if you're coming all the way through and you're bringing goods north from Gondor or something like that. Then you got to stop and pay the toll here. And if you're bringing things down to Gondor from Arnor, you got to pay the Gondorian toll there too. Um, yep. So that was my theory about what this is: customs house. Sure. Um. All right. So let's let's go back inside and try to get. My, I, I've we've been into Tharbad twice now. But both times, oh, we did find, by the way, a um, some Cardolan tower decorations in there. Um, so uh-huh. it's clear that Cardolan did, in fact, I think that they, 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 they. It seems obvious that they just kind of retooled it because, you know, they took it over, um, yeah. and built it up because. Again, the, the the ending of the old Gondorian road at the gate shows that it wasn't built later on. You know, it was built back in the days when Arnor and Gondor were still, you know, early on a thing. So oh, yeah. anyway, so let's try to let's try. Maybe we we'll get up on the bridge. The bridge is a fairly high spot. We just won't jump off the cliff this time. Um, so let's come up on the bridge, which has lots of orcs on it. Interestingly. Um, yeah. All right. So. Big picture aside, what is happening here? We've got a tall tower over there on the eastern side. That makes sense. Western side, sorry. That makes sense because there we have... Oh, you know what doesn't make sense? What? All these rapids. This is supposed to be navigable well past Tharbad, this river. Well, maybe it was when they first built it. Yeah... And some of these rocks, especially these these ruins right here, look like they could very likely be made from tumble-down ruins. Yeah, yeah, it's the rubble causing the rapids. Yeah. It does look like it. The one to the a little further down the west looks less like it, but um, yeah, yeah, yeah I think it's... I think it's most of the possible. rapids are centering around bits of architecture that's fallen in. Yeah, I think that's clearly true with the one that's right in front of us to the to the southwest yeah. here. It's the one. It's the one further down because I don't see other buildings around there. But in any that case, that one looks like a rock slide, though, because you see the red rocks are the same as the rocks on the side. Right. Okay. So it's still probably something that has happened since the Numenorians sailed up this river. Uh, yeah, and that's like, a lot of since. Yeah, it's like five thousand years ago. So sure. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, <laughs> a lot can happen geologically in five thousand years. Um, but uh, I mean, even geo, even on the geological time frame, things can uh, happen. You know, the Noldoran whoever go around here are always just like, "Oh wow, I remember when this was navigable." <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, they're like, "Man, you know, things change so fast." Um, Is it in a couple of thousand years, and then this? 
Right. Yes, Hrothgar, I can certainly see how this river would have been deeper before the city fell into it. Yes. Um, okay, so... But anyway, as I said, the tower to the west, straight to the west there, um, would have been a downstream-oriented river, right? Whether it was... Or tower, rather. Whether it's like a, a light tower, you know, like a lighthouse, in fact. Um, or we, you know, we've got this other tower on the other bank over there, right? So... At least this one, the, 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 this westernmost tower on the northern bank of the river seems designed for sea travel. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so for ships coming in from the sea. Uh, what else do we see? We've got a bunch of lower rotunda buildings. Rotunda-looking things. Huh? What was that? We got these rotunda Monica. Yeah, yeah, we do have these little rotunda things. Um, Did they let's have see if we can get among those. Feeling like a, this in Anuminus? There were a bunch of rotundas in Anuminus. Um, okay. It was certainly a rotund city. Um, okay, there's this t- big tower in the north. Mm-hmm. I, I think um, the spires in Anuminus threw me off. Yeah. There's no spires here. Not so anymore. this part, if we look to the east on that the south a, bank here. That's a big old citadel there. That's a big old citadel there. Yeah, that was clearly the center of the city in the old days. And mm-hmm. it's on the south bank. Sort of bank. Hang on, that's not even a bank. That's an island, isn't it an island? Uh yeah. That Again, that might not have been an island at the time. It is true, though that would be very anuminous, wouldn't it? I mean, anuminous yeah. had that whole deal with the the main palace being on an island in the middle. Yeah, that's true. But uh, yeah, it looks like this er- the area that's under this bridge might have been a little above water, especially given the the, the rapids now. Yeah, I mean, clearly uh, from a navigation standpoint, this is, um, uh, I mean, this river needs a dredging in the worst way, right? Um, uh, yeah. It's way out of, uh, and yeah, again, it's certainly not been assisted that a whole bunch of the city has fallen into it. Um, well, possibly as, there are some locks or something like that that would have made it easy for boat travel and transfer, and it also maybe. would have kept this area dry. Yeah, yeah. Um the presence of a of a sort of a shallower part of the river here would certainly have been what su- what suggested situating a city here in the first place um, mm-hmm. as a convenient place to cross this river um, yeah. to go north and south. But of course, they would want to maintain the navigability of it, which is presumably why this bridge is so high. Yeah. Right. I mean, we had to climb way up to get up to this bridge, which... Again, considering that it would probably have been at a um, a shallower point in the river to begin with, to suggest the crossing, could have gone lower across, but it was it was leaving room for boats underneath. Yeah, so um, we're we thinking all sails, is that why? Because if it is shallower, then yeah, I'm not I, sure I mean, how I, tall a boat you could get through here. Yeah, well, I, we'll look under it later on, but... Also, of course, we don't know. Is it possible there could have been a drawbridge here? 
Yeah, possibly a drawbridge, but also all these little broken off columns here make me wonder if there were more structures. It does remind me very much of a canal lock. Mm. Yeah, maybe. Well, you know, all the columns or down after, there? After, like, right. I, yeah, some kind mm. of, or some kind of uh, man-made way to get boats around. But also, looking at the, the, the city on the other side of the bank, that it, it's pretty much flooded over there, where it probably wouldn't have been back in the day. Yeah. So I yeah. feel like maybe they sort of harnessed and mastered the water to do what they wanted. Yeah. No, I, I think they could. I mean, the Numenorians plainly had that kind of technology. Um, yeah. They and so that means modeled off of Roman, so aqueducts and locks and canals wouldn't be that big a yeah. stretch. I think the arches under this bridge are sufficiently high for reasonably sized um, ships to come up here. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I see that, Emmanuel. That's what I was thinking too. I was thinking that these stone piers looked like it was probably just like huge wharves, like they're. Like I'm, I'm imagining down. I was imagining down there like a big old, um, you know, like riverside marketplace, basically, like right on the wharf where, you know, boats could, you know, dock next to it, and it would be like this big oh, whole... riverside district. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Well, again, we'll we'll look in more detail. Right now, I'm just trying to get the general mm -hmm. lie of the land. So we've got this central island which may or may not have been an island. It's possible it was part of the South Bank or the North Bank. But I think it's pro I think probably island. We can see places where it was flooded. But if we look in more detail, look at the look at the flight of steps that comes down to the water here on the western side of that central island. Right? Mhm. Mm I think that was an island from the beginning. I don't think it's just flooded. Um, besides, as I said, it's there. very enuminous. There's a... Oops, almost lost my horse. There's a... There, on one of the little spits of land next to the island, there's a definite footpath running across it. Wait, on which bank? Uh, the little spit of land just in front of the central island. You see a bunch of reeds, and then there's a little oh. brown path. Yeah, maybe... It's obviously more recent, but... Right. Well, but and that certainly suggests some recent flooding and stuff. True, um, but it does make me wonder if we're going to see cobblestones down there or if it's just regular river rocks washed up. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, right, right down where that person is now running, yeah. Yep. And hopping, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Who's down there? Oh, it's Saginaw. Uh, okay, right, yeah. Saginaw. Thank you, Saginaw. Exactly. Um, what's to report? Flagstones? Do you see flagstones there? Was that a street? Um, okay, then we get, well, we still get a bunch of rotunda-like things up here. Looks more pebbly than flagstony. Okay. Okay, um, so that would, that's put in later, I guess. All right. It, it looks... It so, I was going to say then... At first, I was going to say it, the city seemed to favor the southern bank, but that's when I thought that this 
fortress here was on the southern side, but now that I see that it's in the middle, I think it's probably more evenly distributed and yet not symmetrical. Yeah. It's not, um, I mean, not that I would expect rigid I... and exact symmetry, but, yeah. um, but it, it doesn't have that kind of, uh, if we did have a zoom in overhead map of this city, which I really wish we did, um, it, um, it would, you know, I don't think that we would see like, even the kind of symmetry of layout that we see in places like, um, uh, like, like Minas Tirith, right? With the, the, yeah. you know, the regular tiers that go around, you know, on, on those regular gradations. Um, yeah. or like the kind of symmetry we see in, um, Isengard, right? With the, the way that the, you know, the roads regularly, you know, radiate out and cross, right? You can see there was a very clear and kind of geometric pattern that was established there. And that, of course, was a Numenorean construction as well. Um, mm -hmm. So we know that between Minas Tirith and Isengard, we have those two very clear examples of um, extremist urban planning, you know, um, <laughs> like extreme artistic urban planning. So this does not seem to reflect anything of that sort. Of course, neither did Enuminous, right, or Fornost. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. So it, it's, it's not that that's surprising at all. Um, but, um, no. but although they're even, so although they're, again, they're, they're equal, but they're not symmetrical and even. Um, so I don't it think like they started at one place and then just branched out organically as the need arose. Yeah, I think so, though. Um, though, I'm not sure about totally organic. I think they're, it seems to me too even for that. I, I, I do think that this was conceived. This was a city that was conceived to be what it is, a city on mm -hmm. both sides of the river. At this important crossing point, I mean, the importance of Tharbad, Tharbad is an enormously significant geographical location uh, and like political location um, oh, yeah. in the older days. Right. I mean, it's yeah. it is the crossing of a major river, which is hard to cross anywhere else. Um, that makes it the absolute bottleneck for northwest, north, south traffic in this whole part of the continent. Right. And yeah. at the same time, it's also the first major seaport up, you know, um, upriver in the biggest, most navigable river um, in this whole part of the continent as well. Right. So it's it is in that way between the land route and the water route across roads, which seems to me to be deliberately planned um, to be a crossroads. Um, yeah. Oh, it's like and, Bristol. It's like Bristol. That's part of it's in Virginia, and the other parts in Tennessee, and it runs on a railroad. <laughs> right. Okay. Not familiar with with uh, with Bristol there, no, but yeah, no. Well, I mean, literally, it's, the town is bisected. It's borders two yeah. states. It's yeah. Yeah. No, that um, voting is so confusing. That seems to be the intention. Um, that seems to be the intention of the design of uh, of of this city, hence its central feature being on the island in the middle, right? Neither one mm -hmm. side of the river nor the other, but equally overseeing both sides, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, the, the DC conundrum. Yeah, this fortress being at the heart of the whole, mm -hmm. uh, of the whole city, the heart of the whole crossroads, right? Um, yeah. 
commanding the river in both directions and the road in both directions. And yet neutral. Well, maybe. <laughs> no, it's still our No. <laughs> right. But, or it, but at least, again, and I've got to think, because of its nature as a crossroads and its comparative, I want to say comparative neutrality politically, Right. I mean, it's not quite equidistant between Gondor and Arnor, but it's the closest there is between, mm -hmm. you know, to equidistant as far as major cities are concerned, because there oh, aren't yeah. really any major cities in in Enidwyth. Um, mm -hmm. You know, this is and as we have evidence, as we saw last time, that this was the boundary that, that the boundary between Gondorian jurisdiction and Arnorian jurisdiction was here. Um, for these reasons, I think that. I want to say that it seems to me to make most sense that Tharbad, one of Tharbad's chief importance, like its chief importance is not political because it's not a central outpost of either place. It's the place in the middle, right? Yeah. And it's but the place in the middle between that's two peaceful... Treaties. That's where... Yeah. Well, yeah. yes. If you had warring countries, right? If it were, it would be of crucial importance if Arnor and Gondor were at war with each other. Right, who controlled Tharbad would be hugely important. Well, but I they were think peaceful. That never crossed anyone's mind. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly, sure. Um, hence, fortress, presumably, in the middle of it, right? Um, mm -hmm. And yet, um, again, so I think its primary significance, especially during the long centuries of peace at the beginning, um, was commercial. Hmm. That this is this is a this is a, a center place of trade, especially with being the way that the, the land route and the river route cross. Um, yeah, yeah, that's that's definitely apparent. And you would have had uh, all these different cultures sort of equidistant for for meetings of the mines and, and trade mm -hmm. and stuff. So that that makes perfect sense as well. Yeah, hence the hence the you know, all the peers on both sides, perhaps, if they were wharves, you know, broad wharves, um, you would have lots of sea, um, you know, these you know, big markets that um, where ships could sell their uh, their wares, like right from the docks, essentially. Mm -hmm. um, the I was going to say domes are not fully they're pointy domes, right? The the pointy domes and all these rotundas that we're seeing around here. They kind of remind me of Numinous, though I don't remember pointy domes like this in a Numinous. Yeah, um, everything had big spiky bits in the Numinous, so I'm not right. Really, and I don't, I don't see any of the spiky bits. bits now. Most of the towers don't have tops. They might have had spiky bits once upon a time, yeah. but um, it's hard to tell. Um, but um, but it's yeah, it, it's. It is certainly Arnorian architecture and obviously is very like the kind of Arnorian architecture we've been seeing um, around um, around Cardolan here. Um, but yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that's interesting. Amethorn is wondering if they hearken back more to Numenor. You know, it's possible, Amethorn, of all of the places, of all of the places that we've seen, all the cities that we've seen, Tharbad 
is the one that is most likely to have been a city actually constructed as a city by Numenorians in the Second Age. Huh. Yeah. Because the Numenorians totally came up this river a lot. Like this was a oh, big yeah. deal. Yeah, for yeah. Them. And um, so I could absolutely believe... Now, you know, very likely, maybe it wasn't as, as sort of big as this, as grandiose as this, but I think it's very possible here that what we're seeing is a city which was taken over by Cardolan and kind of redecorated by Cardolan when they seceded from Arnor. And therefore, so we've got a, a Cardolan city, which is a repurposed Arnorian city, which was originally a repurposed Numenorian city. Hmm. Yeah. That sounds like a central hub to me. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, the the um, Vinyalonde is, I believe, the port at the mouth of the river, the Numenorean port, right? Um, yeah. Going out here. Yeah, I think that Vinyalonde um, was down here um, at the... No, that's the mouth of the Brandywine. We're down at the Guathlo. Um Further. Yes, yes. Down at the mouth of the... Mouth of the I, was, I still wasn't zoomed out far enough. I was looking at the wrong map. Um, I think that, that that's where Vinyalonde was. Um, so we know they had a major port at the, but that's, bec they built it at the mouth of the river, of course, because that was the port to and from Numenor at that point. But we know they came up this river. This is the land that they deforested. That's why the trees are all young growth around here. You know, young okay. growth from only the last 5,000 years. Um, <laughs> really young trees here. Um... But um, but anyway, yes. So it is an interesting theory that perhaps the pointy domes that we're seeing are an architectural relic of not nouveau Numenorean architecture like a Numinous, mm -hmm. but old school, actual, old time Numenorean, original Numenorean architecture from the original settlement that was built here. That's a really interesting theory. It's an interesting theory, and I am I am interested to explore it. It's getting late now, but here's what we'll do. Next time, we'll take one more. So this, we didn't really do a tour. We just stood on the bridge and looked around, really which was showy. good. Um, wow, this has sort of the understated charm to it. But also, yeah. it, it follows the, the lost the lost technology theory that Tolkien always says. Yes. That is, that they get older, yes. things, the knowledge gets lost. And domes were one of the big things that got lost in, in the Dark Ages. Yep. No, that's interesting. So yeah, so let's let's um um let's next time let's ex we'll 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 do a quick run around the city, looking around in the buildings and stuff, and let's see if we can see anything that looks like evidence of different different archaeological levels, right? Excellent. Um, I mean, we know we've seen that in different places in Lotro before, like in Brie, where you can see the three very clearly different levels, right? The You can see the the modern town of Brie, the old Arnorian ruins, and the older pre-Numenorian wall mm -hmm. before that. So we know that there are places where they have, in fact, embedded that kind of um, history within 
the gaming architecture. We'll see if we can see anything that might suggest uh, support for our Numenorean theory here um, uh, next time. So we'll 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 tool around um, the city itself and get a closer look next time, and then mm -hmm. uh, and then we'll see what comes next. Cool. I can't wait. All right. <laughs> Thanks very much, everybody. Um, we will see you guys next week for a more detailed trip around the streets of Tharbad. Uh, in the meantime, thanks for joining us, and we'll see you guys next week. Bye. Bye now.